Toffee Podcast, your source for stateside views on Everton Football Club, hosted by Alex Johnson and James Boyman. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host, James. Very exciting day today, Alex. It is. So this moment is the exact moment in which American Toffee Podcast has come full circle. So James and I have a quick story for you before we dive into the episode. We took a trip. The first time we met in person was about four months ago when we took our overseas trip to see Goodison Park and see Everton play a couple times. EFC fan engagement really hooked us up on this trip. They planned a ton of really nice stuff for us. And so we go over, and the first day that we're in Liverpool, we got to go on the Legends Tour of Goodison Park. At that exact same moment, we found out that Tim Howard was going to be in Everton 2 at the exact same time that we would be at Goodison Park doing our tour. And so we contacted EFC fan engagement, and you know, we said, hey, is there any way, do you think we'd be able to you know, we'd be able to finish 15 minutes early, duck out of here and just go over there and get a chance to meet him in the store. And they were like, yeah, sorry, don't think, uh, don't think times would work out. And so James and I were kind of bummed, but at the same time, we knew that we had a match the next day. Right. And and just for everyone who hasn't been fortunate enough to make the voyage over, go to some park and, and it is probably 20 minutes from the city center, which is where Everton two is. So unfortunate that we couldn't make the timing work out, but like Alex said, we had the match the next day. We weren't going to let it get us down. And so we go in, walk up to Goodison match day, do all of the match day festivities, St. Luke's Church burgers, do all that good stuff and chips. And then we go and we meet up with uh, Christine from the fan engagement team. And she takes us pitch side and we start doing this interview with the content team. This is the moment where I think everyone probably has seen by now the video where we're chatting to the to the cameraman. He's asking us questions. And in the background, unbeknownst to us, Tim Howard sneaks up, taps us on the shoulder, and we are just completely surprised, flabbergasted, floored. Unbelievable moment. He shakes our hand. He introduces himself like like we don't know who he is. Like, come on. <laughs> and that was a that was a crazy moment. And and in that same moment, he offered to come on the show at one point. He's like, Oh, well, oh, you've never you've never asked me to come on the show. And it's like, uh, <laughs> It's like our biggest dream ever to have you on. And so that was pretty much that. We had a quick, you know, two or three minute conversation with him. And then he went off to do whatever else he had to do on the match day. We watched the match, the 1-1 draw against Manchester United. And when we got back from Europe was, of course, when coronavirus hit and everything blew up. We finally got him on last night and we talked to him for about 40 minutes. And it was an unbelievable such a nice guy, such a forthcoming with, with information and stories. I'd have to say, if you're new to the show and you're just coming to listen to us for the first time, this is probably, you know, the best place to start. If you're a long time listener, I think you'll have a, a level of appreciation for like how special this is for us as American Everton fans to finally speak with, I think, safe to say the man who may have spawned the majority of, of Everton, American Everton fandom. Easily. I mean, he is the reason I am an American fan. I know, I mean, an American Everton fan. I think that he's got a huge reach. This is the pinnacle of the podcast thus far. We both hope you all enjoy it. And without further ado, next up is our interview with Tim Howard. 
ladies and gentlemen, we are very, very pleased to welcome onto the program former Metro Stars, Manchester United, Colorado Rapids, and most importantly, United States national team and Everton goalkeeper, Tim Howard. Tim, thank you for joining us on the American Toffee Podcast. Guys, it's my pleasure. I'm delighted we could finally hook up. So last time we saw you was, of course, at Goodison Park on the day of Manchester United versus Everton, your two former Premier League clubs. And I think that's probably the best place where we want to start the interview, talking about the transition from playing in the MLS for Metro Stars to the Premier League and Manchester United. When you made that transition, obviously there's there's a huge amount that goes into moving to a new country and all of those things, and, mm-hmm. and some of that might be expected. But were there elements of that transition that you didn't expect or maybe took you by surprise? All of it. I mean, you know, you have to, you have to remember, I was, I was a young boy. I was 20, 22, 23 years old when I made that transition. So, like, everything I knew about soccer was like, it was it was the MLS. It was it was kind of in the infancy of the MLS as well, right? So there right. was a lot. There was a a lot to still be desired, and, and the MLS has become a, a a wonderful league, and for so many reasons. But at the time, a young league, and I didn't go from like MLS to somewhere in Scandinavia, or maybe like a lower league in Belgium, and then kind of climb my way up. You know, like I went to the tippy top, right? So like there was so much of it that didn't make sense. That was difficult. That was that took a lot of time to adapt. So yeah, I mean, to answer the question, it's, it was, you know, most people don't make that jump and there's a reason why. Yeah. That makes complete sense. I mean, like, so in terms of like a cultural perspective, was there anything that you might not have been expecting? You know, I think that it was this, this aspect of football being everything to the English people. Like it was what they thought about when they woke up and all day, and then when they went to bed and everything they read and everything they, they ingested and it was everything. The smallest news, good news, bad news. It didn't matter what it was. It was every and so there was never there was never a time to shut off. So like I, I went over the first year and like you're just waiting for a time to, to shut off, right? Waiting for a time. Mm-hmm. You know, like I get on the plane to go to a league game and I get back from let's say Chelsea and my bags are still packed because we have to go away on Tuesday for Champions League, and then I get back on you know, early hours of Wednesday morning, Thursday, and then you have a league match on the Saturday. And it was, I mean, it was just waiting for it to like stop for a second and it never stopped. And so was the pressure, especially playing for a club like Manchester United in that era. Was that just something that was completely overwhelming? And how did you manage to take that massive jump from, like you said, a fledgling MLS to the biggest club probably in the world at the time? Well, I think, it, you know, history tells you all you need to know I, I was running on fumes. I was athletic as hell. I used that, you know, in the Premier League, it's very good to be athletic. Uh, that is a massive trait of so many players, particularly good goalkeepers. And so I had a lot to learn as a goalkeeper, but I just kind of flew around and figured it out on the fly and made some really good saves and made some blunders. And, you know, at a certain point, I was always going to need, and I talk about this a lot, I was always going to need to learn my craft as a goalkeeper, like actually become a goalkeeper, not just an athlete in goal. And you don't get to do that for very long at Manchester United, you know, before yeah. the rug is pulled out from under, and rightfully so. I mean, you know, there was all of the decisions that were made at Man United were the right decisions. And so I had to learn and there was a learning curve there. But at the same time, when you get when when you get signed to play for Manchester United and you get thrown into the, the community shield against Arsenal and the first game against Bolton at home of the of the season, you you're the starter 
you don't knock on Sir Alex Ferguson's door and go, hey, I think I need a little bit more time to develop. You just go, <laughs> all right, get us out, you know? So that's kind of what happened. So, you know, that actually ended up being a fantastic transitional point for this, uh, for this next topic. So at United, you played for Sir Alex Ferguson, and then at Everton, you played for David Moyes. Please give us your favorite memory of both. Mm, favorite memory of both? One would be um, with Sir Alex Ferguson, my first game in charge. Uh, first, sorry, my first game uh, that we played Community Shield, and uh, we end up winning in a penalty shootout, as, as you know. And the opening goal right. was scored by Thierry Henry, bent the ball over the wall, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I think I had three people on the wall. He, th- he thought I should have had more. He was probably right. And, and, and at the end of my career, I probably would have said I was right, but he was right at the time. And, uh, and he, gave me, he gave me the hair dryer treatment, you know, which probably was actually tame for his standards. But to me, I was like, you know, shaking in my boots, you know. So that was my first game. You know, I, I, always, I always remember that because, like, you hear about it, right? And you're like, ah, whatever. Right. Yep. And then, like, it happens to you and you're, like, you're gobsmacked. Uh, and the other funny, <laughs> the other funny part about about uh, him was in my third season when I thought, okay, my time's come. You know, I don't want to like being a backup at Man United is cool. Being a Man United player is cool, but like I, I need to, I need to go. I need to have a career for myself. And you know, I, 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 I always want more. So I remember thinking, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm done. You know, no hard feelings, but I'm done. And I remember driving into training for about a week and a half, thinking like chart, like geeing myself up, like I'm gonna go knock on his door. I'm gonna go knock on his door. <laughs> Every day for a week, I'd go upstairs right next to the canteen, <laughs> and his door would be closed. And I and I'd like kind of listen in and go, "Nah, I think he's on the phone. I'll come back tomorrow." You know, <laughs> it took me about a week and a half before I knocked on the door. I was scared out of my pants. That was that. And David Moyes got you know he's a man I adore and I and I love deeply, uh, and I mean that sincerely. Just so many, so many stories because I shared I shared so many uh, incredible moments with him. You know, I think mm-hmm. the one that stands out for me was. Uh, well, two, because I gave you two Ferguson stories. You know, one was an undisclosed player, which I, I cannot name, decided he was <laughs> going to test uh, David Moyes' resolve. And that ended with the player being pinned up against the locker by the throat. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he quickly he quickly backed down from whatever it, whatever it was he had a gripe with. So Moyes was not to be crossed. And <laughs> which I, I always remember because the player was, he was a big talker. You know, he had, he had a lot to say. So the gaffer came in the room and asked if he still had anything to say, and then subsequently uh, decided to uh, handle his business. And the player didn't say boo after that. <clears throat> and, the other, and the other thing, and I think this probably sums up who he is. Um, I think in two thousand and uh, two thousand and ten, yeah, summer two thousand ten, two thousand eleven season, we played. I think one of our first games was at uh, was at Blackburn, and I was going, I was going through a divorce at the time, early stages, and uh, this, which is obviously tough for anybody. And uh, I. Th- chucked one in against Blackburn away. It was awful. It, it was just one of those, like, it wasn't like I was trying to do I was. It was, I got the ball. I slid out. Sylvan Distant, Distant pushed the striker off of me. I slid, got the ball, and I went to get up and play it and bowl it out. And the next thing I knew, it wasn't even in my hands. Mm. And the boy tapped it in. We lose 1-0, right? I think we're, it, it couldn't possibly get any worse. And rightfully so, I, I never lean on excuses. So I took it on the chin as I should. And, I, and at that moment, maybe the next week, Next day, I went up into the gaffer's office and I, I knocked on his door. And I remember I was in tears. And I said, "Look, gaffer, I, you are well within your right to say whatever you need to say to me." I, I, it was a massive screw up. I said, "But just so you know, this is what's been going on in my personal life." And I had kept it quiet for so long 
because mm -hmm. it wasn't about football. It was about my personal life and I can keep them separated. But it felt like the two had, had blended together at the moment. And I, you know, I just went and he, and he was a father figure to me so I could go in there and I can break that and tell him. And I just remember him being the most amazing human being uh, at that moment, you know, because he's a tough, he's a tough son of a gun. And uh, at that moment, there was a genuine love and concern for, for what was going on in my world. And so um, just a special person to me. And that's interesting that you, you, you know, you kind of tell us a story of like maybe the harder side and the softer side. And of course, you played for David Moyes at Everton, but then following his career at Everton, he moved to Manchester United where he maybe wasn't quite as successful. Mm -hmm. But do you think there's similarities in, in how they run a team, their demeanor and training that made him a good candidate for the Manchester United job at the moment when he made the transition? Yeah, look, I think he, I, I think he certainly was the right man for the job, and subsequently, the fact that they sacked a, a bunch of <clears throat> managers following, you know, they, you always have to give give a manager time. You have to give him a few transfer windows, and yeah. that could be two transfer windows, three transfer windows, whatever you think. You know, you have to you have to get that part right, um, and it's really easy to 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 kind of kibosh a project so early on because there's pressure from fans and media and all the rest of it. And I think a lot, of, <clears throat> I think. Probably seventy-five percent of the decisions that get made by board in England, by the boards in England, are based off of media pressure and and fan pressure. Wow, um, really? You know, yeah, it just seems that way. And uh, you know, which yeah. is why it's so important to have strong people in charge and the trust of those people. But yeah, look, I think that that the hard-nosed Scottish way of of making sure players are on task and doing the right things, and quite frankly, you know. David Moyes got to United at the end of what was a team that needed to be re rebuilt by by Sir Alex Ferguson or whomever came in next, right? <clears throat> so there's still a lot of players who were there who were obviously loyal to Alex Ferguson, as they should be, right? And a new voice comes in and people are always going to challenge that and feel like they're bigger and that happens, right? And so where David Moyes has always been brilliant is getting his teams to buy in because he brings in his players. They believe in him. He believes in them. And then there's this amazing synergy. You saw it all down all down the time he was at Everton. So that needed to happen. And that takes time. And he didn't get it. And the rest is history. No, I think that's totally fair. I think it's clear based on what happened following David Moyes that, you know, no manager was going to be able to turn that team around in a single season. And that he definitely, Correct. in hindsight, deserved more time to, you know, exert his influence on the team. But that's, exactly. that's an insightful answer. And, and so, so, of course, as you made the transition from United to Everton, and we're hoping to get more playing time, it seems like you fit right in that you were a, a good fit for the team. And we know that the Goodison crowd can be unforgiving and ruthless yeah. at times. Um, do you think there was, there was a reason for why you were able to gel so quickly within the team? Do you think maybe perhaps the previous Americans who had played for Everton, kind of the history of, of the partnership between, or I guess the pipeline, American pipeline at the club benefited you in any way? I think that the hardworking nature of the club it's a family club. You know, it's a people's club, as, as David Moyes called it, and it, it's become known as. That That resonated with me. It was less corporate and more family. And yes. right, from the, right from the off, I, it was like, honestly, it was like this was home. It felt it in every way. And, and again, I, it was, I was thankful that I was coming to, from Man United. That always helps. Any club I've ever been at, when a big player nah, – I don't call myself a big player. Player comes from, <laughs> player comes from a, a, a team – a big team that has reputation. <clears throat> There's always this lift of the dressing room, right? Like you're, I, I sense it every time I'm in. Every year I'm a part of a football club. Like better players we can get in, the better I feel. And so obviously, coming with that 
moniker, the fact that I'm coming from Man United, that Phil Neville had come the year before me. Those were all things that that helped in my transition. No, I, I think that that's totally fair. That that's an interesting observation, and it and it's also interesting that you bring up. You mentioned Everton being the people's club. Maybe not everybody knows that in 2001, you were MLS goaltender of the year, but also MLS humanitarian of the year. Mm. And you talk a lot about your charity work and, and how important that is to you and, and obviously to others in your biography. Yeah. Everton does as much as anyone through EITC. Was that something that you were aware of when you were making the transition to the team? Or how did you kind of come to be familiar with EITC and the fantastic work that they do? The buy-in to Everton, the community <clears throat> was pretty impressive to me, right? Like you go there and you try and pull your own weight and be a part of the club. And that that's a massive part of the club. But then as I was there for 10 years, you realize what synergy there was between the players and the club and the community and all the, all the charitable work they do in the community. It's just like, it's so impressive because no player says no, no player says no. You go in there and every time something is asked, not only do guys do it, but they do it willingly and lovingly because there is this desire and connection uh, with our fans. Who are the people in the community? As we're talking about EITC and your involvement with the club, I don't think it's any secret that now you are the Everton club ambassador. Mm -hmm. And can, can you talk a little bit about your role as the ambassador? You know, I, I, it's pretty easy, right? Um, for me, when I... When we talked to Everton about being coming on and being a global ambassador, I just said to him, look, use me in any way you can. Like, I'm right. so happy to do whatever it is you guys need of me because it's my club. And so whatever that looks like, let's figure it out. If you have a set plan, let's let's set the plan in, in motion. And if it's just right. one-offs and, and you need help here or there, let's do that too. And so it's kind of all-encompassing. And that's kind of – that's the way I like it. It's, it's super organic. You know, if I have to – come across to to watch a game and, and, and be a part of a, a sponsorship initiative push, great. If I need to go to Chicago or Atlanta and go to a to a toffee bar and, and, and hang out with the supporters and drink some beers and cheer cheer on the boys, do that too. Like it's not it's it's really all encompassing and that's kind of the way I prefer it. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I think it probably keeps it pretty interesting as well. And and maybe some could consider this as part of your uh club ambassador. Yeah. yeah. Being on the podcast, Absolutely. right? So I, I, yeah, I'm, and, it's, I'm it's, and you mentioned, you know, going to the pub and having a few beers. I remember a couple of years ago, I went to the uh, Fan Fest, NBC Sports Fan Fest in Boston, and I had the chance to meet Leon Osmond there yeah. doing uh, just that. So it seemed like he was having a pretty good time. Hopefully, maybe if we're ever able to go back to bars again, you can also <laughs> drink a few beers with some blues. Oh, easy. But yeah. I, I, I'm happy to do that anytime. <laughs> One thing that I wanted to ask you about, and this was a recent development that the club announced is the International Academy affiliate program uh -huh. and the club announced specifically a couple partnerships with a club in Florida and a club in Ohio. Is this something that you knew about before it happened? And also from your perspective, obviously having come up through maybe not the level of academy or youth training that is available to players today, but also having seen firsthand the academies in Europe, how beneficial is having access to resources of a massive club like Everton for these clubs in the United States? Yeah, look, I, it's something I've, I've discussed with, with Everton. Um, obviously, the, the, the two academies that are already up and running are pretty awesome. I didn't have that, you know, the, the academy structure, the European style, you know, bringing players through the ranks wasn't a thing when I was a kid. 
but it's getting bigger and better in the in this country, which is massively what we need at the grassroots level. And of course, in terms of you know, Everton and the football that they're playing and the influence they can have on the game, both in the UK but particularly here in America, is is pretty solid and massive. And so, you know, obviously, I'm I'm excited to be a part of that. We've had discussions and what you know, what makes the most sense and how we can how we can look to leverage that because it's you know we want we want football clubs in America to be affiliated with you know, with Everton as much as possible. That makes a ton of sense. Moving on, let's talk about Carlo Ancelotti, right? This is yeah. a hot topic for all Everton fans. I'm sure uh, you get excited talking about Carlo Ancelotti as well. So you played his Chelsea side four uh-huh. times back in the day, one of which was a 2-1 win and Landon Donovan scored. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> what do you think a top-tier manager like Carlo Ancelotti brings to a dressing room? I think what, and I think what he does for <clears throat> Everton as a whole is it really – you know the thing about Carlo Ancelotti, and he's he's a winner. You know he's he's won everything. He's cl- coached at the biggest clubs in the world across the continent. Dealt with the biggest players. Uh, his his net reaches far and wide. And so I think that's more than anything what excites me about about Everton is is, is the ability to have him at the helm. You know from a recruitment standpoint, you know it gives it gives a lot of players a reason to think that could be a place I w- I'd like to be. And we've already been linked with some top players. And so, you know, for, for me, I, I get I get excited about the possibilities of, of some of these names coming in and gracing the pitch at Goodison. Most definitely. I think when we were linked with him, I know that a lot of pundits in the media and other fans of other clubs thought that there was absolutely no shot that we would be able to bring him in. Sure. But I think deep down, Evertonians knew that you know, we had a compelling sell or a compelling pitch to make any manager that would want to come in with the new stadium in the works with Marcel Brands as director of football. And I think Carlo Ancelotti is like the cherry on top of all of the things that have been building and culminating for a few years. And that he really puts like a stamp of authority on, on what Everton are trying to build. And as Mm -hmm. they try to push for the European places. Yeah. Marcel's a massive, massive, massive part of, of what this football club is trying to do and achieve. And, and I don't think you can underestimate the importance of, of that role. Uh, I'm in that role myself. And so I speak of it from, That's true. from <clears throat> that side of things. He becomes, he becomes the glue that brings everything together from player recruitment to the manager, the connection with the board, you know, whether it be signings, budgets, all the rest of it. You have to have somebody who knows the landscape, who has the ability to make the big decisions, make the big call, trust in the vision. Look, you have to have a vision. We talked about time and Manchester United and all those things. You have to have a vision for the club, what that looks like, and continually climb that ladder, right? Like results are going to ebb and flow. You hope you win all the time. You don't always, right? You're going to have draws and that's fine. What you have to do is continue to believe in that vision, but also act on it, right? And that's what Marcel has done. He has a vision for the club. He's put the manager in place. He's clearly the right manager for the job, beyond the right manager for the job. And now as the signings start to come in and, and you know, our style of play becomes what it is, um, which is what you need as a, from a manager, then you can start implementing the signings. And those, you know, window on window, every six months, you start to creep and build and creep and build. Then all of a sudden you have yourself a winner. We certainly hope so. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's the mission and, and the objective. And, you know, it's going to be a process. And I think, you know, after so many years and, and Alex and I being haven't, been fans nearly as long, but for the fans who have been waiting 20 plus years for Everton to finally regain their rightful place towards the top of the first division of England, I think there's there's a lot to be optimistic about as an Evertonian right now with all the pieces that are starting to fall in place. Sure. I did want to quickly shift gears because, of course, after you left England, you returned 
back to the MLS and in Colorado. You said earlier that when you were originally in MLS, it was not nearly what it is now. So when you returned, how different were things? What was, was it almost a completely unrecognizable league from what you had left behind? Yeah, because, so here's the thing. When I left, it was, we played in American football stadiums, right? So not a lot of fan, you know, maybe 10,000 fans, but the stadium held 65,000. Not massive supporters groups to speak of, right? In terms of like <clears throat> real diehards, right? Like I could go, I could go to a, an away stadium and people are asking for autographs. I'm like, hey, great job today, Tim. And not even our fans, you know? When I got back, there were soccer specific stadiums. Like almost everyone had them. You know, that or, or, or were being built. In my time away, the, the rule for a designated player came into place, the David Beckham rule. So you're having top players from Europe come across in their prime, you know, who can still light the league up. You know, the, the academy system gets put in place. Uh, the reserve league gets put in place. So all these things that naturally you needed to improve a league happened. You know, so that when I come back now, you know, Seattle does have 60,000 people. Atlanta does have 70,000 people. They, everyone has a soccer-specific stadium that they're selling out. And so now, massive supporters groups, supporters pubs, all things that like are natural to people in the UK weren't when I, when I left. But now, you're hated. You go in as a rival team, you're hated. Like That's the environment you want to play in. And so, huge, huge changes. Shoot, I've seen that over just the, every, every single year in recent years alone. You see the league grow and progress dramatically, not even just off the pitch, but on it as well. So it's been a really nice change. Now, in terms of your involvement with, well, being an owner of multiple other clubs, right? I think both of these ownership plays happened while you were still physically playing for Colorado. Yeah. How did you get involved with Trinity Holdings and what made you want to become an owner of multiple clubs? Yeah, so I was. I was still playing at the time, but the opportunity presented itself. So yeah, there was a little bit of wiggling we had to do with, with, um, with MLS and, you know, getting them to loosen the reins a little bit. And to be fair, you know, Don Garber was brilliant in our discussions with him and, and he understood the opportunity. So I'm thankful to him for you know, allowing me to have the opportunity, even though there's a slight conflict of interest, not much, but at the back end, there could have been. And look, I, I look, as I, I wanted to be an owner. It was one of those things when I was a young kid, I said, I want to play in Europe. I didn't actually know what that meant. I just said it because I wanted to play in Europe. Um, didn't know how I was going to get there. And I just, but, and, and as I finished, Playing, one of the things I said was I'd like to be part of an ownership group. I, I didn't really know what that looked like. I hadn't actually had an opportunity to do it before. You know, and then Peter Freund, who who is in of itself Trinity Holdings, and 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 he he started he, he owned the baseball team here in Memphis and wanted to start a soccer team. And again, I talk about synergy. Memphis is my home, and I know a thing or two about soccer because I've been in the game for a long time. <laughs> and he and I hit it off, and the the rest is really. History. We 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 hit it off. He wanted me to be a part of it. I wanted to be a part of it. Again, very similar to my discussions with Everton. I was like, look, this is my home. This is soccer in my hometown. I want to I want to be part of it. Let, let's figure out what that looks like on the back end. But let's agree to this now. And we did. And um, we've kind of figured it out along the way. I have an ownership stake, and I'm the sporting director of the club, and uh, we're making massive strides in here within the USL. So I'm glad, I mean, you mentioned earlier, Marcel Brands, how important a sporting director is for any club. And with Memphis FC, Andrew Bell was the sporting director for mm -hmm. the first season. And then you took over the reins. Mm -hmm. was, the, was that always a, a goal alongside ownership that you wanted to be a sporting director as well? No, not particularly. <clears throat> I think I, I think I was, I was pretty hands-on in my role as an owner. 
you know, obviously Andrew did a, a, a fabulous job getting us up and running for the first two years, you know, for the first year when we got the franchise and then, you know, we obviously building that into up into our, our inaugural season. And we, and, and took, he took us through that. I think there was just, a, there was just so much football information going around that at a certain point, uh, it made it made sense for me to transition uh, into the sporting director role because I was kind of playing that role a little bit anyway, kind of from afar, which only made sense that once I once I got boots on the ground here in Memphis and I retired from playing in Colorado, that I could spend m- more time every day doing this. So uh, it kind of made sense to then shift gears, and it wasn't the plan from the beginning by by any stretch of the imagination, but it made sense as we move forward. Okay, so so we talked about how you got involved with the ownership group, and then naturally, as you said, you moved into the sporting director role, and now we know that you have decided to play again, as we saw a picture a couple of days ago that you shared, back in goal, you <laughs> tagged Memphis. So was there a particular moment you knew you wanted to play again, or was it was it a gradual thought process in terms of it might have just been like nagging at you, and then you saw your opportunity? No, to be honest with you. It was pretty simple, really. I, I didn't. I retired to retire. Uh, I didn't. Plan, I didn't plan on playing. <clears throat> and I and I think that one. I, I keep myself fit in the off season always. So this. It wasn't like I was retired. I'm an athlete, right? So it wasn't like I went to retire and just hang out on the couch. I, I still kept myself fit. <laughs> and so that was that was one part of it. And then as we started to build the team, and again, let me say this: as a sporting director, I, I think my job is the holistic well being of the football club. So there's right. a lot of hats you can wear at this level. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're making sure players are sorted. You're talking to agents. You're figuring out uh, with the coaching staff a style of play. You know what 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 the club ethos is. There's just a lot of things you do that are very very holistic and 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 overseeing. Um, you know, and as we started to build the team, and I as a sporting director, you know, in in talking Peter Peter Freund, by the way is very influential. He uh, he wanted me to play, and so. Um, he and I had a few discussions of what that looked like, and uh, you know, I, I was still fit. Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't far off playing, even though I had retired. And so, I said, "Look, uh, you know, when, as the preseason starts to starts to get up underway, you know, I'll jump in a few trains and see just see what it's like." And what I learned is part of this being a second year team culture is a massive thing. You talk about Everton and Man United and any other team; they have a culture that, that's been built right. for a hundred years or however long, and that's to, that's down to successful teams and certain managers and the fact that the stadium is in a neighborhood whatever it is there's a culture and so and so from my standpoint I thought about that's important to me particularly at the beginning I don't think you can I don't think you can take a shortcut on culture early on and I wanted to build that and I and I also thought the only way to have influence on that culture is to be in the dress room you can't wear a suit up in the director's box and point your finger at guys because they won't listen and it won't matter but what I kept, what I could do is get down the trenches with guys, roll my sleeves up, uh, be a good teammate, help lead by example, and teach other people who are going to be around a lot longer than me in, in the, you know, on the pitch to certain ways that that is to be expected of, of a Memphis team. And uh, so that was probably the deciding factor, to be quite honest with you. I actually really liked that. I really liked. I really appreciated your answer there. I think that shows really great leadership. So thank you. I can just picture you, Tim, like in the in the back room with a depth chart, and you're looking at goalkeeper position, and you're like, you know what? I I think I think a Howard one would look pretty good up on there. Up I mean, on there. I, mean, I uh, thought about it a couple of times in the off season. 
Yeah, but it is interesting because in building a new club, there's really you're you're starting from the ground up truly, and so you having the background and everything, it almost seems like a natural fit for you to then go in and try to to build the culture of the team in your hometown. Yeah, it's. I mean, wish you all the best with the mission. I'm I'm sure you'll be immensely successful as you have been throughout the rest. Thank you of your career. Just a couple more questions for right. you. I believe you made the announcement that you were returning to playing, and then that was just before all of yeah. the disruption in the world occurred. Yeah. So how has that kind of affected your your plans, your day-to-day? How have mm. you been dealing with it? Have you been holding up okay? Yeah, look, we you know, we had one we got one game under our belt against uh, probably one of the top four teams in the league, um against Indy eleven. And we 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 went punch for punch with them toe to toe and uh, in the end we lost four two but I tell you what we 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 gave one heck of a, an account of ourselves uh, for you know a long stretch of that game seventy minutes or so and it gave us a lot of hope and a lot of encouragement for the season and then the next the next week we got shut down so right you know, in the meantime just been as I said the, the holistic well being of the football club just trying to make sure that we stay on top of the guys that we make sure they have what they need engage them in in tactical discussions and uh, mental health discussions and you know right now uh, social justice discussions uh, everything we can to try and to try and make make things better in their world albeit from a distance and and uh, not being able to kind of huddle up as a team and get together so it's been difficult and challenging but i think we've seen the other side of it and now we have a start date for our season and we're back training so everything is on the up and up all right so to wrap up some of the serious questions before we go into our lightning round, kind of nice and lighthearted yeah. and easy questions. And let's pretend that you have your owner slash sporting director hat on currently sure. for this question. Sure. What is one thing that you took for granted as a player that you now appreciate more as an owner slash sporting director? Easy budget. That's the simplest question. <laughs> I said all the time. I, I, I used to, my, my general manager in, um, in uh, Colorado, Porrick Smith, brilliant guy, brilliant general manager. And I can just remember he and I, I have more respect for him than I have most people in the world. And we'd go head to head all the time. I'd say, come on, Porrick, why can't we just get the guy? We're linked to this one. Just go get him. You know, and we had these conversations and he'd, and he'd be so, he'd be so patient with me, but basically he's telling me to go jump in a, jump in a river. And I told <laughs> my last with him. I got, he, I got here to Memphis and we we're doing budgets and we're, and, and I'm, and I said, I said, oh, now I get it because I did before I was a player. I just wanted what I want, get the players in so we can win. And then I got to Memphis and realized there's a budget and I got, okay, now this makes sense. <laughs> so that was an easy one. I think Everton fans all over the place will appreciate that sure, because sure, sure. knowing what's going on now and all the uncertainty regarding financial ramifications right. of, of the virus and all of that, I think the average person probably lacks an appreciation for financial, you know, financial statements in general, but yes. particularly in regard to sport where fans will say, Oh, you know, wh- why can't we just splash 40 million on this player? And it's like, well, right. you know, cause it might right. set the club back a decade. On the balance sheet. <laughs> and then some. Exactly. So thank you so much for your answer so far. We just have a few more for you. Sure. We have our, our lightning round and, and some of these were submitted by our listeners. Don't feel the need to elaborate too much on any of them. Okay. But we'll just fire them at you and we'll go. Got it. So first question, favorite kit in your time at Everton. Uh, Goalkeeper kit, it would be a camo. You know, that's a mm, yeah. camo kit in 2012, maybe, because um, it's just such an oddity, and then people kind of love it, <laughs> and now I can't find it. I think my dad has one, but I don't I don't even know what it was. 
All right. So who was your best friend in the squad during your time at Everton? Sylvan Diston. Ooh. Interesting. I like that. Go to pump up music before a match, or if you don't listen to music, what's your pre-match routine? Yeah. Uh, it, it would probably be like some old school 90s hip hop, you know? There you go. Okay. Nas, Tupac, Eminem. Something Love it. Love Easy. it. Easy. Until yeah. I collapse. <laughs> oh, what a song that is. Great song. That's like my... That's my jam right there. All right. <laughs> uh, first tattoo. Oh, the really stupid Superman one I have on my right arm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What would your job be if you hadn't, hadn't been involved in football? Um, I would have loved to work. Uh, I'm a massive basketball fan. Always have been my whole life. <clears throat> I'd love to work in the NBA, in the front office in the NBA, for sure. Nice. Great answer. Okay, last question. And this one will, I'm sure our fans across the pond will be listening intently for your answer. Favorite spot in Liverpool besides Goodison Park? Favorite spot in Liverpool. Oh, that's a good one. Good one. Um, Probably be one of uh, an unnamed drinking establishment down on the docks. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, for sure. Good there you stuff. go. Well, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciated this conversation with you. Well, listen, you guys are awesome. Anytime you want me on, I'm here. Fantastic. We will definitely take you up on Great. that. Thanks for tuning in to the American Toffee Podcast. Come join our Discord community at invite.gg ATP and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at USA Toffee Pod. 